Episode 78, Mr. Klopp, two middle-aged men in Cleveland. And yes, we've made it to the end of December. I'm not sure how. I'd like to dedicate this podcast, obviously, to a couple gentlemen. First of all, Jack Conklin, number 78 for the Cleveland mm-hmm. Browns, who mm-hmm. won't be playing anytime soon. Mm-hmm. And uh, a famous Cleveland football player that I think, as I say the name, you'll remember this guy, Carl Harrison. Oh, I was just thinking end. that. Yeah, absolutely. Part of the uh, 1980s, uh, late 80s uh, team, right? Certainly was. Yeah, one of my favorite players. He shares that number with a few other great players. Anthony Munoz. He was pretty okay, good. Yep, sure. Bruce Smith. Yep. And Art Shell. Oh, well, I believe was the first African-American head coach in the NFL. That's true. That's very true. Very cool yeah. stuff. But uh, Ted, we're not going to talk about COVID. There's a lot going on. We talked about that last week because both you and I had it. But, you know, our show is not dedicated to COVID. It's to entertain. Nope. So you talked to me before the show and you kind of mentioned that you had some uh, a really a funny obituary you wanted to bring yeah, up. Is that know, correct? Periodically, people will write obituaries that are. You know, not just, oh, he was a beloved this and that and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I saw this and I thought, we need to share this. So this is the obituary for Renee Mandel Corin. This is what it says. I'm reading this. This is direct from the obituary now. A plus-sized Jewish lady, redneck, died in El Paso on Saturday. The body, fertile, redheaded matriarch of a sprawling Jewish-Mexican redneck American family has kicked it. This was not good news to Renee Mandelcorin's many surviving children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, many of whom she even knew and in her own way loved. There will be much mourning in the many glamorous locales she went bankrupt in. McKeesport, Pennsylvania, Renee's birthplace and where she first fell in love with Ham, and atheism, Fayetteville and Kill Devil Hills, North Carolina, where Renee's dreams, credit rating, and marriage are all buried, and of course, Miami, Florida, where Renee's parents, uncles, aunts, and eternal hopes of all Miami Dolphins fans everywhere are all buried deep. Renee was preceded in death by Don Shula. There will be a very disrespectful and totally non-denominational memorial on May 10th, 2022, most likely at a bowling alley in Fayetteville, North Carolina. The family requests absolutely zero privacy or propriety, none whatsoever, and in fact encourages you to spend some government money today on a one-armed bandit at the blackjack table or on a cheap cruise to find our inheritance. She spent it all, folks. She left me nothing but these lousy memories, which I and my family of five brothers and my sister-in-law, nephews, friends, nieces, neighbors, ex-boyfriends, Larry King's children, who I guess I might be one of, the total strangers who all to a person loved and will cherish her forever. Please think of the brightly frocked, frivolous, funny, and smart Jewish redhead who is about to grift you, tell you a filthy joke, and for Larry King's sake, laugh. Bye, mommy. We loved you to bits. Outstanding. That's really not much to say. That is for uh, Renee Mandel Corin. My gosh. Yep. How about that? 
Got to have a good sense of humor. There's no what doubt about size that. Jewish lady redneck. <laughs> Cutting right to the chase. She kicked it. There you go. Right to the chest. All well, right. Speaking well, of uh, kick it. Well, yeah. what do we what else we got coming up? Today? Oh, well, coming up on this week's show, we have good news about a man who loves to build toys and then share them. We have a misspeak of the week and you can probably guess who it is. Oh, boy. Our Cleveland sports expert, Dusty Sloan, is here to talk about another great Cleveland sports moment. And staying in sports, Steve Muehlhausen from DAZN, D-A-Z-N.com. We'll get in the ring to talk about Cleveland's Jake Paul. Our Cleveland historian, John Grabowski, is here as well with more info on something about Cleveland you might not know. And we will talk with the founder, owner, and CEO of Jib Machine Records. It's a record company based right here in Cleveland. All that plus Botox being used in a beauty pageant of sorts. But the competitors in this one aren't people. I'll explain in Klopp's Clips. That and more coming up. Oh, no, not a dad joke. What is the favorite Christmas carol of every new parent? Favorite Christmas carol? Not sure. Mm. Silent Night. That joke was horrible. Cleveland! This is for you! Another edition of Cleveland Sports History... This will be an interesting one as we bring in our Cleveland sports historian, Dusty Sloan. And it has to do with Paul Brown from November 15th of 1970. He was the head coach of the expansion Cincinnati Bengals. And this had to be a tough one. He defeats his former team, the Cleveland Browns, a moment he calls his greatest victory. What can you talk about in that contest where Paul Brown was victorious over the team that he established and then establishes another team and beats that team? Well, the one thing that people have to remember about 1970 is it was the first season post-merger. So the Cincinnati Bengals started life in the old American Football League, played a couple of seasons there, and then was integrated into the NFL with the rest of the AFL to basically make the AFC. So both teams come into that game at three and six. So it wasn't like the Browns were the Browns of when Paul Brown was coaching them, obviously. So there was a good chance that they were going to win the game, and it was in Riverfront Stadium. So you combine those two things together. Now, the Browns, interestingly enough, led the game 10-0. And then the Brown or the Bengals scored a touchdown in the second quarter, touchdown in the third quarter. But this was not an offensive gem by any stretch. And the Bengals won the game despite turning the ball over three times. They lost three fumbles. But as most Browns fans know, when you have Mike Phipps as a rookie quarterback, oh boy. it didn't much matter who was on the other side. And the Bengals did have a pretty good quarterback back then by the name of Virgil Carter. Hmm. So, uh, Paul Brown, obviously, uh, Art Modell uh, encouraged him to uh, seek employment elsewhere, which was a uh, move that many Browns fans didn't appreciate. And one might say, I don't know, what what do you do you think one guy came out uh, better in that overall, uh, for lack of a better term, feud? Well, if you remember, the Browns, once they let Paul Brown go, they did win a championship in 64, and we all know that's the last one the Browns won. Mm -hmm. By the time the early 70s rolled around, the Browns weren't nearly as good as they were in the 50s and 60s. In fact, it took an awful long time 
And it took Sam Ritigliano in the late 70s, early 80s to get the Browns back even into a playoff posture. And one of the reasons for that is, and I keep going back to Mike Phipps, rookie quarterback in 1970, we all know who he, his draft rights were traded for. That was Paul Warfield. So that set the team back quite a bit. But obviously, Paul Brown wanted to come back. And one of the things they wanted to do that he wanted to do was beat his old team. And he didn't have to waste much time in doing it. No, absolutely not. Well, the part, the part that's very interesting is uh, as I, we look at some stats from that game, the coach for the Browns at that time was Blanton Collier, who obviously is uh, certainly a famous coach for Cleveland Browns history. But I guess the part that, that gets me, Dusty, is you think about, you know, we talk about Art Modell and, you know, obviously took the team over. Unfortunately, you hear about these things. He was part of the reason Jim Brown left. He's part of the reason, you know, certainly Paul Brown left. And then he was obviously the part of the reason the team left. Do, do you think, you know, people always have positive things to say about Paul Brown and all the innovative things that, uh, you know, certainly he did for the NFL game and the things he came up with. Do you feel as though Art Modell was one of those guys that at the end of the day, he's always going to be looked down upon just because of everything that happened and all that specifically, let's be honest, letting go probably one of the greatest coaches ever. Well, certainly. And I, my, my stance on Art Modell has softened over the years and it's only because of my Christian faith and not because of anything Art Modell did, but <laughs> I, I, I was much worse to him back in the day, but uh, obviously Art Modell for everything that he may have done positively and everybody credits him with getting the big NFL TV contract back in the day, Monday night football and the whole thing. He certainly made his fair share of mistakes, including getting rid of Paul Brown, fighting with Jim Brown, and obviously eventually running up so much debt, including signing Andre Rice and months before he, sell, he moves the team to the point where he felt like he had to do that. So when, when, you, out, when you weigh just the Cleveland Browns and Art Modell, I believe Art Modell did a lot worse than all the things that he did good for the Browns and not just looking at the league as a whole. Hmm. Yep, yep. Yeah, well, we can talk about Art Modell another time. This is, uh, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, Paul Brown, one of the great uh, uh, coaches who, uh, you know, I mean, the, the team down south, their, their colors are the same. Their uniforms were quite similar. Really, the main difference was the name on the side of the helmet. Yeah, the, uh, they, they enjoyed going with just the bangles across the helmet until they went with the stripes. That wasn't very creative. The stripes look a lot better these days. Yes, they do. Well, luckily that Paul Brown did come up with the Cincinnati Bengals. Cause at this point in time, two consecutive years, it seems like it's turned our current Cleveland Browns around. So we appreciate Paul Brown doing that. We appreciate him coming up with the Cleveland Cincinnati Bengals. So our team can just uh, get right up there and play a little bit better. Well, Dusty, <laughs> Great memories of uh, 1970, Paul Brown, one of the historic coaches, period, in the NFL as he created the Cincinnati Bengals. We appreciate the time, sir, and wish you well. Thanks, guys. Cleveland! This is for you! Ted, we have some great news and some good news. A 95-year-old Pennsylvania man continued his tradition of making wooden toys for Christmas. Ed Higginbotham made 300 of them to be given to kids in the Fayette County area. The World War II veteran has been doing this since the 1980s and estimates he has given away at least 3,000 toys since he started. Wow. 
Higabotham says he just loves to make the tractors, trucks, and other toys from rough wood and then give them away. Wow, that's really, really sweet. That's very, very cool. 95 years old. 95, toys for kids. and he's still woodworking and giving the stuff away. Does he have another name? I don't know. I mean, Could Santa? That's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. So. St. Nick? I don't know. St. Nick. And by the way, thanks for your service, too. Oh, by the way, defended the country in World War II and now makes toys for kids. Yep. Certainly I a mean, person for others. What else? What, what, does he does he serve hot meals at the shelter too? I mean, <laughs> holy cow! Wow, unbelievable, pretty impressive. Somebody, someone certainly to look up to. So hats off to Ed Higginbotham, who's made over three thousand tractors, trucks, and other toys from rough wood for many years for kids. That is some good news. Blah 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 blah. Our guest today is a musician and now an owner of a record label, a Cleveland-based record label, Jib Machine Records. We're going to talk about the Cleveland music scene. We're going to talk about running a record label, all, all kinds of musical things. So let's talk with John Charlie Templeman, or JT, as we uh, uh going to call him here. So JT, thanks for your time. Tell us about Jib Machine Records. All right, guys. Well, thank you for having me. Um, so Jib Machine Records is uh, a Cleveland-based label, independent label that has been around. Um, started it initially in 2004, uh, went live with the very first website on January 1st, 2005. And um, it's been a pretty interesting ride since then. Um, uh, it's, it's, it, at currently, um, we have a quite of, um, uh, eclectic varied roster, um, ranging from bands that are, you know, not very well known and are in the process of building their fan bases all the way up to, you know, some very established artists that have, uh, that have done well in the music industry. Um, we're primarily rock based, but it's various forms of rock. And um, on January 1st of 2022, we're also, also launching an EDM imprint of Jib Machine called uh, Electric Stick Records that will be primarily uh, dance music, house music, ambient music, anything that's more along the lines of electronic or, or experimental in that nature. Well, JT, obviously a fundamental question right away. Thanks for joining us. Um, obviously wanted to find out more about Jim uh, Machine Records, but the question I have, how did you get in started with this? How did you decide to, to start a record label? I mean, I, obviously, as many people know, the Cleveland music scene is outstanding, but how mm -hmm. did you get involved and decide, okay, this is what I want to do and this is how I want to work with these bands? Um, it was kind of by accident. Um, I, <clears throat> I had a, I was in a couple bands in the late nineties and into the early two thousands that, um, you know, just didn't reach the goals that we had set out for, you know, set out. And, um, I kind of took some time off for music and I had a friend who, um, was, uh, who I'd met here in Cleveland, um, while he was a student at the Cleveland Institute of music. Uh, and then he ended up moving to New York city and was working in one of the bigger studios there. Um, and I went to visit other friends in New York and then he and I hooked up and I recorded some demos in his home studio. 
And then I took these demos and some of the recordings I had done in Cleveland um, and packaged them up and was going to release them because I wanted to get back to bare base, yeah, bare bones, start playing solo acoustic shows in coffee shops and bars and stuff like that. And in order to release this, I started Jib, Jib Machine Records. And the first releases were this release, as well as um, leftover CDs from those two bands that I just you know, had previously mentioned that didn't work out. Um, at the same time, uh, I had a, a, a batch of heavier songs that a friend of mine said, you should get together with this other friend of ours who's a drummer, who I knew he was a drummer for years, um, but we never had done anything together. So we got together one afternoon and ended up jamming for about four or five hours, wrote a couple songs. And that's how my, my uh, band <laughs> that was, that's currently on an indefinite hiatus, uh, Hot Ham and Cheese, uh, was formed. When Hot Ham and Cheese started playing in the Cleveland music scene, some of the bands that we were with were like, you know, can we be on your label? Um, <laughs> so the first band we officially signed was a band called Johnny Mohawk and the Assassins. Um, <laughs> and they were an amazing punk band. No, they haven't been together for years. Uh, but the second major band we signed, um, uh, you know, aside from something that I was in, uh, was the Hostel Amish. So you guys have probably heard of the Hostel Amish and they've been a fixture in Cleveland punk for over 30 years. And then that's kind of how the label really got going then. And, um, you know, we we're pretty much on autopilot, just, you know, playing a lot of shows. Uh, you know, all the bands were, were constantly playing out, traveling, you know, touring regionally. The, the Amish and Hot Am and Cheese did a national tour. Um, and then, you know, the label kind of went into all sorts of crazy directions from there. I'd say we were on that initial run till about 2009, 2010. Then the Assassins broke up and Hot Ham and Cheese wasn't playing out as much. Neither was the Hostel Amish and things just kind of went in a different direction from there. I'd say there's been multiple phases of the label. Over I, the love, I love the names of the, of the local bands. They're, they're <laughs> unique and, and it's always interesting to hear some of these names of these local bands. Now, uh, speaking of local, being in Cleveland and a record label, uh, everybody kind of knows, you know, New York. LA, those are the, the big music areas. Mm -hmm. Does it, is it helpful to be in Cleveland in a little smaller area, but near the rock hall of fame? Does it hurt? What's how, how can you speak to that? Yeah. I think nowadays it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, there are bands on the label that are based out of Los Angeles, based out of New York city. Um, some members based out of Nashville, um, some bands, uh, but, uh, you know, also, you know, what's interesting is um, in the summer of 2020, Jim Machine signed a, a distribution deal with a company called CPI. Um, it's it's um, physical and, and digital, domestic and international distribution. And CPI is ran by um, a guy, awesome friend of mine by the name of Clay Pasternick. Clay's been in the music business since the late 60s. And he's been based here in Cleveland since 74. So ironically, our distribution company is based right here in Rocky River. Um, most people don't know that. Um, but, it, you know, again, it doesn't matter because for digital releases, I have a, um, you know, a back end portal where I could upload everything. And then um, Clay's digital manager, her name's Stacy. She's down in Florida. 
she looks over everything and gives it the go ahead. And then it's really convenient because a lot of the physical stuff that we do, if I lived in a different city, I'd have to ship it to clay. Well, nowadays we just get together for lunch and I have a box of stuff that he may need and he opens up his trunk and I put it in and, you know, we're good. Um, so it's, it actually is good. I think being based in Cleveland, um, it's, it's beneficial and it's even more cost effective than being in a city like LA or New York city. We also have a band on the label. Um, well, two bands, but there's one art, one constant, an artist named Hawken England, who's in a band called two bands. One is mouth of clay. One is concrete gypsy. They're based out of Sweden. So we have a band from Sweden signed to the label. Um, in addition to, you know, some of those other areas I spoke about here in the States. JT, I, I did some research. I, I try to sound intelligent when I do these interviews with people. Um, so I found there was a CD, a two CD set that kind of talked about all of the different Cleveland music and all the different artists. It's called Green 15. Mm -hmm. It's 30 tracks. I'll be honest with you. I'm super interested in that. Can you talk about this two disc CD and, and kind of what's on it? Yeah, so Green 15 was uh, a compilation we put out in 2019 to celebrate the 15th anniversary of Jib Machine. Um, there, were, there are tracks on there. It kind of gives you a really big picture of the label, kind of historically as well as, um, you know, now in the present. Uh, there were songs on there that uh, bands had, had just released or you know, so there were some unreleased tracks on there that have since been released, but they were, you know, um, songs on forthcoming albums of, of some of our artists. There were some historical classic tracks like Johnny Mohawk and the Assassin's American Punk is on that, which is one of the classic songs, I think, that was you know, more popular songs that Jib Machine ever released in its history. There were also some just weird side projects on there from not only me, but... Um, other members in main, in main bands on the label, some of their side projects and some friends of the label were on there too. You know, people that aren't signed to Jib Machine, but you know, um, there's a band on there called The Natch uh, that was based out of New York City that we used to, they had, that Natch was a newer band um, that a couple of the members in, the, in that band had, but they had been in a band called America's Sweetheart that used to tour um, and uh, they would, they would play here and hang with us here in Cleveland. And then we'd go to New York city and play shows with them. And, and so it was, uh, you know, just friends of the label too. So I wanted it something that was representative of the past, the future and kind of where things were going. And so I compiled green 15 and that's, um, uh, yeah, I, I, that was an enjoyable album and it got really good reviews. Um, was interesting was there's a couple reviews that stand out from that one. Some guy in Scotland reviewed it and then um, a reviewer in New York city reviewed it. And they both pretty much said the same thing, which was, you know, we never really heard of this label, but there's some really good stuff on here. You're not going to like all of it, but there is definitely something for everyone on here, depending on what your musical tastes are. So check it out. You know, they both pretty much said almost exactly the same thing. And, one was coming from you know, Europe and one was from here in the States and, you know, in New York. So, um, yeah, Green 15 was something I was, I'm pretty proud of, you know, it was probably one of the better compilations we put out. So, JT, what's next for Jib Machine Records and where's the name come from? <laughs> 
The name is uh, just kind of a, um, we, we've always told people that it, it was a big crane, you know, Jib's a big crane and it's, we're going to come and we're going to ram you over with our music is, okay. but that's really, that's the public version. It's kind of a private thing. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Okay. Uh, well, what's um, next for Jib Machine? What's, what's next? That's a good question. Um, you know, this year, uh, like I said, we signed the, the, the deal with CPI in June of 2020. And because of that, there was a lot of work involved with moving the catalog over from um, not being physical, but digital too. moving the catalog over from the from the distributors I was using to CPI. And plus with COVID, I just kind of pushed all the releases back uh, and put everything, a lot of things in this year. And so Jib had 18 releases this year. Wow. Next year. And those are a combination of physical and digital albums, singles, EPs, you know, it, it varies. Um, next year, it, there's not going to be as many releases, but we have some, some big things coming up. Um, recently, I partnered with uh, a couple uh, folks that I work with in the music business to sign an artist out of Australia. She's, uh, her name is Cleo Alexandra, and she's basically uh, a rocker, you know, um, in vain of like Pat Benatar, or someone along those lines. So her album will be coming out next year. Uh, I also have a band signed to the label called Red 37, uh, a power trio. Um, and uh, they got a couple well-known members. Their singer guitar player is JJ Ferris, um, who's in Slam and Gladys, which is a band on the label. Um, and he does all sorts of stuff out in LA, session work and whatnot. And the bass player is Matthew Nelson, who's one of the Nelson twins, that one half oh, wow. of the Nelson twins. So um, you're really excited about that record. Just power trio, straightforward rock and roll. And it is awesome. It is powerful. Um, I can't wait to, to get that out there to the world. Um, like I said earlier, the launch of the, the um, EDM branch, Electric Stick, the imprint is is launching January 1st. And I've been working on it since I left. Uh, well, I shouldn't say left. We keep saying it's over, but it's an indefinite hiatus of Hot Ham and Cheese. Um, right after Hot Ham and Cheese played their last show in November, a couple months later, I started working on a solo record right before the pandemic you know, really kicked in. And I finished that up at the end of the summer this year. And that's coming out in February. Um, I record under the solo named J temp 13 and um, the, my, my new album is called America or bust. And that's coming out uh, February 25th, 2022. Okay. Um, so there's other things, but those are some of the main things right off the bat uh, for next year. Um, and, you know, we'll just keep moving forward and see what happens. Well, JT, we appreciate the time. If folks want to learn more about Jib Machine Records, uh, website, social media, what, where can they find you? We're on, yeah, Jib, jibmachinerecords.com. We actually have a new website that's going to be launching in January. Right now, if you go to jibmachinerecords.com, there's a link to direct you to a, a page called Merch Bucket, which is our online store where you could buy T-shirts of bands, buttons, stickers, downloads, physical albums, cassettes, you know, vinyl, whatever it may be. Um, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. Um, I think Twitter and Instagram are at Jib Machine. Um, and then we're on Facebook too. So definitely check us out, um, especially if you're a fan of rock music and you 
you want to hear some metal, you want to hear some blues, you want to hear just some good hard rock, some folk rock. Um, got a little bit of everything for everybody. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's always interesting to hear what's happening in the, in the local music scene. And this is a, a great perspective. So we appreciate your time. Right, Ted and Ken, thank you for having me. Ted, time for another edition of You Can Really Buy This. Oh, many people have uh, contacted me through social media. They've enjoyed the romantic getaway that you and Eric are going to take. Yeah. They love to talk about the coyote urine and also the box of nothing, as well as the Christmas goal that I gave everyone two weeks ago. Now, I know with the current inflation in our country, everyone is looking for ways to save money, which is very important. So I thought it'd be a great money-saving way to talk about items that you can buy cheaply as opposed to more expensive. So I, I figured many people would appreciate this. The first idea for a Christmas gift doesn't necessarily mean you need to buy something, but you can write a note, okay? So here are a few examples of maybe some notes you can write for someone for Christmas. Ted, I'll use your name as an example. Oh, please. So here's the note I would write you. Ted, for Christmas, I got you $25 worth of lottery tickets. I went ahead and scratched them off for you. You won $2. Here's the $2. Merry Christmas. I figured that would be really nice. I think you would enjoy that. Boy, yeah. Boy, Ken, can't can't spare much expense on that one. Friends like you. uh, The next way to certainly make someone feel special without spending money. Here's yeah. another note. Merry Christmas. Part of your gift this year is that I'm adding one year until I stick you in a nursing home. Merry Christmas. There I you go. I can think of uh, some people that maybe that's appropriate for. I think that's correct. You and I both can think of that. So, yeah. And then obviously wanted to give some other ideas for people that want to, you know, certainly open up their pocketbook, but not spend too much. So uh, here's some good ideas for gifts under $20. I know these are some fan favorites for you. You're going to write these down. You can buy a mini cactus for $17. I think that would make a nice gift. It's the size of your thumb. Organic mushroom grow kit for $15.50. Nothing says Merry Christmas like a mushroom grow kit. Right. A dumpling light. So like, you know, you have dumplings from a Chinese restaurant. You can buy a dumpling light for just under $20. Okay. That would make a nice gift. Sure it would. A mini heart-shaped waffle maker. Mm-hmm. This seems like a very popular item. You can get this for $21.97. And if that doesn't do it for you, Ted, this is the gift that I think just keeps on giving all year round. Oh, yeah. LED shower head. That's right. <laughs> LED shower head. $14.95. Oh, yeah. That's okay. all you Does it have different colors? Of course it does. Okay. Changes it to the colors you want. And oh. I'd be amazed. Yeah. I know you and right. certainly the rest of the family would enjoy that. That's the yeah. gift that just keeps giving all year round. So all right. here we go. Write some notes. A bunch of items under $20, just trying to help everybody out before the Christmas holiday this week. Mm-hmm. And once again, Ted, you can really buy this. All right, time to get in the ring. Steve Muehlhausen from DAZN, D-A-Z-N, is back with us. 
And instead of pro wrestling today, we're going to talk about the big fight over the weekend. Jake Paul uh, from Cleveland knocked a guy out. At least that's what it looked like. Steve was there. I guess, first of all, what's the reaction to Jake Paul? Are people taking him seriously? Is he a big draw? Tell us about uh, his perception uh, at the fight. The draw part, massive attraction beyond Canelo Alvarez. He's the biggest attraction here in the United States. And and you can make a case he's one. He and not make a case. He is one of the biggest attractions worldwide in all of boxing. And you have to give him. And I was just in a meeting and I was, I was talking about this. And he sold over 18,000 tickets. Mm, wow. Just just kind of wrap your head, wrap your head around that, guys. It's different. People are like, oh, can he draw outside of Cleveland? Cleveland's his home base. How can he draw outside of that? And they chose Tampa. And he sold eight, over 18,000 tickets in Tampa, Florida. Beyond hockey and uh, football, there's nothing. There's not many events that come to Tampa. There, there's just not. There's no basketball. There's no NBA team. You got, oh, you got the Rays. I apologize, but no one goes to their games for some reason, which is a whole other a whole other conversation. But he's a draw. He's a mainstream attraction. He clicks that younger demographic. And I was just saying this on a call, that he, he hits that 12 to 34 demographic. There are a lot of young kids there. Kids that were dressed wow. up nice. It wasn't just kids wearing... A t-shirt, a pair of shorts, and a pair of flip-flops. These kids had the hair done. They were wearing the Armani suits and the pants and the dress shoes. Wow. And I'm like, these kids are younger. <laughs> and I'm like, what is going on here? But, you know, you see a lot of social media influencers, and it's a totally different demographic. And the amazing thing was I got to the venue about two and a half hours before the main card started. So there are prelim fights going on. Prelim fights, there's no one there. You had you had a good, like, probably 10,000 people for the second fight of the night. It's like, and you start, and it was like that in Cleveland, and I've covered a bunch of other fights, and it's not like that. 95% of the fights, everyone shows up. Second fight in the main card is you get closer to the main event. So he's a mainstream attraction. He is a star. Whether anyone likes it or not, he sells tickets. He's a mega star. He is a big attraction. One of the biggest attractions you can say in all of sports, not just in boxing. In terms of the boxing public is starting to warm up to him. Boxing's in, and you guys know this, boxing's an older demographic. It's hard to, that's why I think Jake Paul's so good for boxing because he's hitting that younger demographic, which boxing needs. He needs it desperately. He's the guy I think that can like him, Canelo Alvarez, Javante Davis, those are the guys, Brian Garcia, are guys that can get this young, younger demographic, the social media age, into the sport. And he's good for the sport. I mean, people are finally coming around. And they're they're going to have people out there that don't like him. And, but that's with any athlete. Don't, people hate Tom Brady. How can one hate Tom Brady? <laughs> you know, you guys got that in Cleveland with Baker Mayfield. Baker Mayfield hits that demographic to where – He's hitting that younger crowd that people want to go to the stadium and they want to go watch him play. Yeah, it's Cleveland, Ohio. Don't get me wrong. I I like Cleveland now. But people don't view Cleveland as good as we do. So 
you have to give him his credit. You have to give him his due. He's putting in the work. He's taking this more seriously than I even thought he would. He's got a legit boxing team around him. He's got a legit his his manager and the guy he runs his promotion with is one of the reasons the UFC sold for four point two billion dollars. He's around a smart businessman. He he's surrounded himself with very smart people. He knows what he's doing, whether we like it, anyone likes it or not. He's great for the sport. He is a legit attraction. I look. Only way I was gonna go and leave my home again the rest of the year if it was for a mainstream attraction. Jake Paul got me to Tampa. I'm glad I went. It was a great event. The fight wasn't pretty at times. But at the end of the day, everyone got what they wanted to see, and they got to see a knockout. Steve, you know, certainly Jake Paul is a huge name here. You kind of mentioned it, him being from Cleveland and having his previous fight here in Cleveland. Certainly fighting Woodley, who's – he was a – guy that stepped in two weeks, you know, outside of the fight because he was supposed to fight Fury and Fury had a broken rib, so on and so forth. You talked about boxing. You talked about how important he is to this sport right now. Do you think he stays in boxing? And this is the reason I asked that. Here's my question. There's been all this banter between him and Dana White and UFC fighters. Do you ever see him maybe necessarily, I'm not going to say step up his game or get out of the boxing ring and step into the cage of the UFC. I know you cover UFC as well. What, what's your thoughts on that? He said, what day was it? God, I'm forgetting the day off the top of my head. Thursday at the, at the media press conference, he said he's going to do a fight. So he's, cause he's got an amateur wrestling background. Him and Logan are, and this is the thing that people don't understand either. These Paul brothers are athletes. Uh They were in collegiate wrestling, football, track and field. These are very athletic guys. No one wants to give them that, but they have that athletic background. Jake was Jake and Logan were really good high school wrestlers. And, and Jake went and Logan went on to wrestle at the university of Ohio for a short time. So he's a great athlete. Jake Paul can wrestle. Jake Paul said he's um he's already talked and and I talked to where Khabib Nurmagomedov trains American Kickboxing Academy out in San Jose California and I talked to the coach the coach talked to also talked to ESPN and said yeah we've had conversations we told him whenever you're ready we will train you we you have a place so it, that's a more matter of not if but more of a when question he's only 24 mm-hmm. he's got plenty of time. I think he'll do it within, I think, the next five years. We'll see him, whether it's in Bellator or whether it's in the UFC. It'd be something if he was in the UFC, though, for Mm -hmm. even a fight. I would. It'd be quite something. Yep. All right. I I want you to listen to this real quick here. So that is the sound of the sixth round when uh, Tyron Woodley, uh, well, uh, Jake Paul hit Tyron Woodley and Tyron Woodley hit the mat. Some people I've seen on Twitter and uh, elsewhere are saying, oh, this was fixed. This was scripted. This is 
hogwash, blah, blah, blah. You were there. Uh, I mean, he hits him right on the temple and the guy goes down like a ton of bricks. Any thoughts on that, Steve? Anyone that says the fight was fixed needs to get a new life. <laughs> now, Jake saw the opening. Woodley dropped his left hand in his left arm. He dropped his left arm. Jake saw the opening. That's what any decent boxer does. You see a fighter drop, regardless of the hand or arm. You throw a hook. Jake Paul did the right move, and he blasted him out. That's all. And I say this to people too, because there's a ton. You guys know this. There's a ton of morons on social media. <laughs> and I had a couple that asked me, oh, that I saw that, and I chimed in, and they're like, I'm like, how about you stand there, and you let Jake Paul hit you with the right hook? Tell me how you feel after that. The conversation stopped. That fight wasn't fixed. <laughs> I know you guys got to ask. And I, well, I don't think I it was fixed, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I saw some chatter about that, which I, you know, come on. But yeah, yeah we're you were there. So, you know. And you, any people just drumming up, trying to drum up conversation, trying not. And that's the thing you brought up earlier, Ted, about him getting credit. It's another thing of people just trying to discredit what he's done. Sure. He's taking an unconventional path, but you got to look at who he's facing and you got to look at other records of guys of, you know, bigger name, biggest names in the sport and kind of comp compare resumes. He's, he's fighting a, he has a good resume. People don't want to give him that. Is it this world beater resume? But we got to remember, this is five fights. This isn't like fight 10, fight 15, 20, 25, et cetera. It's we can go on and on about it. Five fights. Let's let's cut the. We got to cut him some slack here. Yeah, and he's a smart kid. He knows what he's doing. His team knows what they're doing. He's getting built up the right way. He's got some legitimate skill. This isn't where like he's playing patty cake. This isn't like Lamar Odom. <laughs> he's not. Jake Paul's here because he wants to do it. He wants to help and grow the sport, which he is doing. So part of the purposes are he's already accomplished it and he's helping out women's boxing and increasing fighter pay and getting fighters paid more money. And that's boxers and MMA fighters are vastly underpaid. And, you know, if there's someone that can spearhead that change, I never thought it'd be Jake Paul, but God bless him. I, you can't knock the hustle. Steve, last question for you. In your opinion, who does Jake Paul fight next? Who's his next bout? I think they get, go back to Tommy Fury. I think that's, there was a lot of interest in that fight, and you, you know, when I'm privy to our, when you know, our traffic numbers and our our numbers were down for this fight, and I thought they would be, just because it's a rematch. It's a it's a rematch. Not many people were calling for, and I think, and that's the whole entire thing. This wasn't a thing of, oh, it's just Tyron Woodley. The interest for that fight in Cleveland, and I told you guys this, it was astronomical. It's the biggest event I was at this year. And in terms of just pure traffic numbers for the website and the numbers were good, but they weren't. And even the Google numbers weren't as good as they were back in uh, August where that had almost 15 million uh, Google searches. This one was around, it was like 3.7. And I just huh. looked like right before I got on the call with you guys, just to have that number accurate. And the interest was there, but it wasn't at the level it was four months ago. 
But when Tommy Fury backed ahead to pull out of the fight, the numbers were astronomical because that's what people wanted to see. So I think Jake and his team are going to see that. They know that he's got to get in with a legitimate boxer. I think it's going to be Tommy Fury. I think it's probably going to be April, maybe maybe middle of May. He wants a break, which fight four times in 13 months. I think you, you deserve a little bit of a break, I feel like. And I, that's a hell of a schedule regardless of the opponent. So I think we see him around April, middle of April, between middle of April and middle of May. And the Jake Paul Roadshow continues. And I think it will be Tommy Fury next. I think that makes the most sense. All right, Steve. Well, we appreciate your time today. If folks want to follow your fight, pro wrestling, anything uh, with a uh, set of ropes around it, where uh, what's the best way to do that? <laughs> at S. Mulehausen Jr. That's S. At S. M. U. E. H. L. H. A. U. S. E. N. Jr. That's on my Twitter and Instagram. It's gonna be a nice low key week. It's very much needed, so it's gonna be not too much. Content I'm working, but it's more executive, administrative, blah blah blah. So yeah, I want to go with the details. So, but no, it's gonna be a nice low key couple weeks. Not much happening in the world of combat sports, which is going to be wonderful. WWE's got a big show coming up here. A lot of pro wrestling coming up here, guys. So we look forward to. You got day one coming up, New Year's night. You got Battle of the Belts coming up the week after. So, pro wrestling taking over. You got the Royal Rumble at the end of January. So. Pro wrestling is going to be dominating the month of January in my universe. So, and I'm looking forward to that. All righty. Well, we appreciate your time. Merry Christmas. Happy new year. And we will talk to you in 2022. Yes, sir. You guys have a happy holidays to you and your families. And we will be commencing again in 2022 talking about Brock Lesnar becoming the universal champion. Miss Speak of the Week now on Friday of last week. Guess who? President Joe Biden gave the commencement speech at South Carolina State University. He, he got a little mixed up on job titles here. All kidding aside, of course, President Harris is a proud Howard alum. <clears throat> Sorry, sir. There's a reason people address you as Mr. President. You are the president of the United States, Mr. Biden. So, yeah, little little confusion there from the uh, commander in chief. Yeah. yeah okay. Boy. Yeah. That yeah, is the misspeak of the week. Time for another uh, bit of Cleveland history. Our Cleveland historian, John Grabowski, back with us. And this week, John, we want to talk about the powerhouse in the flats. Today, it's home to an aquarium and a restaurant and an event center. But the name powerhouse, to me, would suggest that it used to have some uh, uh, form of power that it generated. What can you tell us about the history of this most unique structure in the flats. Well, it it, it goes goes back to a day when you could make big bucks in urban street transportation. And uh, as Cleveland expanded, people needed to get from here to there, and so initially it would be horse cars on rails, and then by the early 1890s, electric streetcars came in. 
And uh, one of the men, there were two men who made big money in street transportation at that time. One was Marcus Alonso Hanna, uh, the man that we now remember as sort of the Karl Rove of the late 19th century. He managed William McKinley's presidential campaign. He became a senator. But uh, he was a young, I use the term entrepreneur, and he knew that, that buying street railways would, people needed to get from one place to another. So he began buying street railways. And then he bought a series of Woodland and the West Side Railway, which connected both sides of the town and uh, wanted his own electric plant. And so he had this design by John Richardson, a Scots architect in Cleveland. So he did the Perry Payne building, the Bradley building as well. And it was used to power his uh, streetcar line. And uh, as streetcars grew, uh, basically the, the network grew you got conflict. And one of the people that was in conflict with him was Tom L. Johnson, who would become the reform mayor of Cleveland. And Tom Johnson oh. cut his teeth, made his money, made his fortune on electric transportation, streetcars, invented the modern see-through fare box. And so the streetcar expansion was so great that uh, by 1902, they put an addition on. So there are actually two structures there. And Richardson designed the main structure to look like a sort of a uh, European factory building. So it does have this character to it. Uh, and you probably know it's, you know, this powerhouse and other ones that, that power the streetcars. But uh, eventually what Tom Johnson wanted to do was to get all these privately run companies, which would eventually merge into single uh, big con and little con uh, privately owned companies. He wanted them to be municipally owned. And he wanted the people of Cleveland to be able to travel by streetcar with, with free transfers and at a three cent fare. Huh. And, and he staked his fortune and he staked his morality on it. And he never quite got what he wanted. Uh, the Eventually, the, uh, Taylor Grant uh, gave the uh, operation of the streetcar, still remain, pri remain privately uh, owned, but uh, they were overseen by the city. And that would become the Cleveland Transit System, fully municipally owned in the 1940s. By the 1940s, streetcars were on the wane. Buses were coming, buses were more convenient. Uh, and 1954 is the last streetcar in Cleveland. That's long after this plant was pr producing power. So for many years, it was just empty. Wow. As, as the flats turned into an entertainment district, at least three times in my memory, yeah. uh, this began to be the Jacobs Company. Jacobs Company bought it, and uh, it's the home of the Cleveland Aquarium. It was, you know, comedy clubs there, or, you know, there are bars there. It's become a different thing. So if you walk down in that area, there's a lot of parking around it. Remember, there are always plants. There, there were railroads that came through that carried the coal in. And electric transportation is great, but remember, the powerhouse generates it, and it generates it by burning coal. Yes. Yep. That's so funny. You mentioned about the parking because obviously a lot of people park there to go to Jacob's Pavilion and things like that. So that obviously makes sense. John, are you surprised or were you surprised that that building made it so long? Was there ever plans to knock it down and do something else or is it just way too big? And they said, we'll just use the structure. It, it just hung on there long enough, I think, into the 60s. I mean, it, it was decrepit at one point. It took a lot of repurposing to get it in shape. And uh, by the 60s, I mean, you're, you're looking at that first renaissance of the flats in the late 60s was driven by Herb Strawbridge at Higby's. And you got, you know, Fagan's, you got some of these original bars down in the flats. So there's a working class stevedore area that began to get a little ritzy on the edges. And uh, 
as much of the flats were vacated, the industries down in that area, it's, you know, so it goes along with the cleaned up river, it goes along with boats and, and rowing on the river, it, it all fits in. I think the cool thing is that the aquarium in there, they basically left all that industrial brick and all the piping in there. So you get a sense of where you are. You really are in the powerhouse when you're in the aquarium. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. They've done a nice job with keeping the, uh, the history of the building still there. And of course the smokestacks are still there, which is a, yeah. a neat thing to, to take in as well. Well, John, we appreciate the time and uh, we thank you for uh, the information on the powerhouse in the flats. Thank you, sir. The most trusted name in journalism, Klops Clips. Ken, it's time for the news you need. Whether it's the news you've heard, it's the news you're going to hear right now. Cops in Akron, Akron, Ohio, that is, just a little south of Cleveland, they're on the hunt for a unique piece of stolen property, a 58-foot-long pedestrian bridge. <laughs> the bridge used to span the Little Cuyahoga River, but it was moved to a field as part of a wetlands restoration project. From there, it disappeared. Cops say it was disconnected by bolts and wouldn't take much to disassemble. They claim it doesn't have much recycling value, so they think the thief probably wants to use it. Oh, my. Okay. So, Ken, do you have any use for a 58-foot-long uh, pedestrian bridge? No, I guess the only usage I could think of and probably be heavy, heavy as ever, you can use it as a ladder maybe, but other than that, I'm not sure what you're going to do with it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Saudi Arabia's King Abdulaziz Camel Festival kicked off earlier this month. The breeders of the most beautiful camels compete for some $66 million in prize money. Whoa. Just like other competitions, there is cheating sometimes. Botox injections, facelifts, and other cosmetic alterations to make the camels more attractive are strictly prohibited. The winners based on the shape of the camels heads, necks, humps, and postures. This year, the investigators disqualified more than 40 camels saying breeders stretched lips and noses, used hormones to boost muscles, injected heads and lips with Botox, inflated body parts with rubber bands, and used fillers to relax faces. Nothing is sacred anymore. Nothing. Not even not even the camel competition. Nothing sacred. Can't believe it. And finally, a Las Vegas man is in hot water. Cops say Matthew Hancock used a limo to drive through two metal fences surrounding McCarran International Airport. Then he pulled alongside a jet on the tarmac and got out of the limo. That's when he apparently put on a clown mask Told her workers he was going to, quote, blow this place up. Oh, boy. And he got back in the limo and drove away. When cops caught up with him, he surrendered without a fight, telling them his plan was to steal a jet and fly to Area 51 to, quote, look at aliens. Sounds like Mr. Hancock might need some testing <laughs> in many different ways. <laughs> Test him for on. everything. 
A lot going on there. And we got a lot going on here as we close out this week's collection of Klopp's Clips. Great moments in a parenting. My oldest son was watching a video on YouTube one evening. I could kind of hear the volume. He was watching a video about creating players in Madden football. And I sort of caught the name of the player that they were creating. But I wasn't sure. So I asked him, what player are you creating or watching a video on creating? And he said, oh, well, this is a fantasy player. This is not a real player that's in the NFL. This is someone we're creating. I said, well, what's the name? And he said, Mike Hawk. My wife walked in right as he said this, and I said, hey, he's watching a video on creating the football player Mike Hawk. My wife smirked, started to laugh, turned her head, and walked away. This has been great moments in parenting. <laughs> well, we're wrapping up episode 78 of Two Middle-Aged Men in Cleveland, and we're also wrapping up 2021, Ken. Do you, uh, uh, I guess let's start with Christmas first. What, uh, what is your Christmas tradition? What will you do this year? Uh, same as we've done for many different years, spend time with my parents on Christmas Eve, and then obviously a little bit of time with them as well on Christmas Day. Um, that and then this year will be a little different. We're actually going to go to D.C. to Ooh. spend some time with Awen's mom and, and stepdad. So that should be fun just after yeah. the holidays. So nice. how about you guys? Well, we will be uh, changing it up a little bit this year. We're going to see family. It'll just be a little different. Uh, we're going to have the Christmas... I don't think we're doing anything on Christmas Eve. Well, maybe, you know what? I'm always the last to know these things. Well, I was just going to say, you probably like to get, are. Maybe getting together with the in-laws Christmas Eve. And then uh, I think uh, Christmas Day, some other family members. But, Is your shopping you know. done? Did you complete all your shopping? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All done. Same. How about you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's hard not to now. We we have many different easy ways that they just bring the stuff to the house. I mean, just yep. the Yep. It's, so uh, amateur night, New Year's Eve. What do you got planned? I'll still be in D.C., mm. but low key. Nothing, low key. nothing crazy. Are you hitting okay. the town? Is that where you're going to uh, go I, downtown doing, and hitting uh, it hard? I'll tell you what I'm doing this year for that. I'm going to be probably studying the backs of my eyelids. I like that. Yeah. You know what yeah. I might do? Aggressive eating and drinking. I might. Oh, do that. well, that's that, really, that, that could be really something. I mean, once again, that's nothing new. I mean, that's a daily occurrence. So. <laughs> Aggressive aggressive eating and drinking no doubt that sounds like a, a t-shirt or a book you should write maybe yeah for aggressive sure eating and drinking with ken dwarsnik i had to ask you this real quick not that we would really want to talk about this topic but did the browns contact you at all to play this no week against the raiders no. i mean I, although uh down a few players i think uh if you can fog a mirror you were probably <laughs> on the field on uh monday so yeah, yeah boy. that's Not good. kind of what we're where we're at so all right, well, next week on the, or actually in two weeks, in the new year, I keep saying next week, and we do these shows every other week now, so I got to right. stop it's that. Right. Uh, oh, I've written it here. Next time on the show. Oh, that's next well time said. I like that. Yeah. So next time on the show, two Wednesdays from now, Larry Jorgensen, 
He's an author. He's written a book called The Coca-Cola Trail. It's kind of an interesting trip through the history of Coca-Cola told in all of the different cities that Coca-Cola has history in, where it was developed, where different things have happened that have made it the global phenomenon that Coca-Cola now is. So that'll be an interesting conversation. That'll be great. Looking forward to that. And I imagine he could probably talk about some memorabilia because I know Coca-Cola memorabilia is a big deal. So oh my be, gosh. Coca-Cola. Yeah. Coca-Cola signs and all that stuff. Yeah. That's, yeah. that can be big money. Collectors love that stuff. I, I've never figured out, you know, there's some Pepsi stuff that's collectible, yeah. but yeah. not the way Coca-Cola is at least not yeah. to my knowledge. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why that is just because Pepsi Cola has been around for a very long time as well. But yeah, it seems like there's much many more collectors and maybe that's something we could talk to Larry about as well. So, All right. Well, uh, in the meantime, Ken, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you and yours. Absolutely, Ted. Thank you so much. Safe holidays for you and your family. And Ted, one other item I want to bring up. Yeah, just two middle aged men in Cleveland. Two middle aged men in Cleveland is sponsored by Anchor.fm. Everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And by Westminster AV, custom audiovisual packages for all occasions. Ho, 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 ho,